Hi, I'm Charles Christoph Carter. And I'm his mom, Ellen Carter. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode of Serial Dreadfuls, your place to find original content covering everything from dark historical fiction to science fiction, horror, adventure, and the supernatural. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast provider of choice. Thank you. In our last episode, Greg Vivian was between a rock and a hard place. He awoke to find that Tim Harvey, his former boss at the mill, was planning to pin the Dalton girl's murder on him by telling the sheriff that he saw Greg coming out of the woods around the time the little girl went missing. Greg's bloody clothes, the only evidence that could have unequivocally proven his innocence or guilt, were destroyed by his girlfriend Hunter in a fit of rage. With the threat of the law and no exculpatory evidence to prove his innocence, Greg escaped into the wilderness to buy some time in which to figure out how to clear his name. And now, without further ado, the next episode of Yard Work, written by Charles and Ellen Carter, narrated by Ellen Carter. Listener discretion is advised. Henry? Henry, get up! His room was cold, damp. There was a strong, musty smell mixed with odors of rotting food, canned fish, withered fruit, old bones still bearing strips of uneaten flesh from meals several days old. Open boxes of saltines, bags of cookies, potato chips, and moldy bread littered the floor. Henry pulled the warm covers up around him. Henry, you open those eyes and get up right this minute. Henry shivered as he reluctantly shoved the covers aside and pushed himself up in his bed. His eyelids fluttered and opened quickly, his irises rolling down into place like a child's baby doll when placed in an upright position. This room is filthy. He was still wearing the stained green wool trousers and the bright red plaid flannel shirt that he'd worn for the last week. His badly wrinkled clothing held the smell of urine and the strong scent of body odor. He placed his feet down on an old box of saltines that had grown stale with time. He leaned his weight forward, tentatively attempting to stand, stepping on the box. The box of saltines collapsed under his weight. He sat back hard on the bed, shoving them aside. With his body on the bed's edge, he felt for his shoes in the dim light of the downstairs bedroom, kicking an empty sardine can and half-empty cereal box to one side. He found first one shoe and then the other. Henry, this room is filthy. It needs a good cleaning. I don't know what's gotten into you. Why don't you answer me? Don't pretend like you don't hear me. Mrs. Johnson had been dead for 20 years, her husband 23 years but Henry had stopped answering them aloud just ten years ago. 
Henry was staying with Reverend Hollander for the winter when he overheard someone say that anyone who talked to himself like Henry did was unbalanced and should be committed to an institution. Henry wasn't sure what the word unbalanced meant, but he'd heard plenty about institutions. Mr. Johnson had often told him that he was going to send him to an institution if he didn't mind his missus. Henry still heard their voices in his head, telling him what he should do, but since that day he seldom answered them out loud, even when no one was around. And when he'd yell out for her voice to stop, Mr. Johnson's voice would come to him. It was always the same words, the same threat. Boy, you better listen to her. After all she's done for you, don't let me have to take you out to the woodshed. Henry would cower, waiting for Mr. Johnson's voice to fade. Then Mrs. Johnson's voice would return, just as it always had, just as it did now. As usual, she had something she wanted him to do. Go to the kitchen, Henry. Henry stepped through the doorway and walked down the short hall to the kitchen. Open boxes littered the counters. Trash overflowed three large black plastic bags and was strewn haphazardly across the wooden floor. Henry looked through the dirty kitchen window and across the acres of fallow fields. He shivered from the cold that had invaded the house. He saw the hard white frost that had covered the ground. Henry, clean up my kitchen. When you're finished, you get yourself something to eat. After he had cleaned the kitchen and was finishing his breakfast of stale cereal and canned milk, Mrs. Johnson's voice returned. Henry, it's time for you to go see the Reverend. Winter's coming and you can't stay here. Henry continued to chew but nodded his head up and down dutifully, indicating to Mrs. Johnson that he had heard what she had said. He knew she wouldn't expect him to answer her with his mouth full. When he'd finished, he washed the cereal bowl and placed it in the drain. Then he pulled his coat off the hook by the kitchen door and slipped it on. He slowly and carefully buttoned each of the buttons, just as Mrs. Johnson had taught him, and then pulled on a knit hat. Now you go straight to the reverends and no lollygagging down by that lake, Mrs. Johnson said, and don't forget to take your valise. Henry nodded and gripped the small valise a little tighter. Did you check to make sure you packed everything? Mrs. Johnson asked him. He hesitated. Check your valise now, Henry. Henry always did what Mrs. Johnson said. Henry sighed. Stooping down, he laid the small suitcase flat on the floor and snapped open the two catches. He lifted the lid to reveal his treasures and the haphazardly packed clothing. He had packed a small crystal bell wrapped carefully in tissue. It was Mrs. Johnson's Sunday dinner bell. He patted it softly. Henry picked up the folded dark brown leather glove Mr. Johnson had given him. He opened it. Inside was an old brown cowhide baseball, some of its darkened stitching broken. It had belonged to Mr. Johnson. When Mr. Johnson was having a good day, he would tell Henry stories of how he had played baseball as a young man. Then they would go out into the yard, and he and Henry would play catch. Boy, you gotta watch the ball, Mr. Johnson would tell him. Henry tried hard to catch the ball, but most of the time he would miss. Mr. Johnson would shake his head. Boy, you gotta keep your eye on the ball, he would say to Henry. More than once the ball had hit Henry in the chest. 
On those occasions, Mr. Johnson would say, that's why you have a glove to catch the ball, Henry. Henry closed the glove with the baseball inside and laid it back in the suitcase. He carefully picked up the framed picture of Mr. and Mrs. Johnson and their nephew in his white Navy uniform. He stared at the picture and then placed it face up in the suitcase. He put the two pair of wool socks he'd stuffed into the suitcase on top of the picture and then shoved some dirty underwear and a pair of blue wool pants over that to keep the picture from rattling. He rearranged Mr. Johnson's old cardigan sweater that Mrs. Johnson had given to him after Mr. Johnson passed away. Certain that everything was there, Henry closed the suitcase and snapped it shut. He stood up and left the house. Henry walked down the path that wound its way behind the farmhouse to Mirror Lake, its half-mile circumference, often glass-like, placid, but beneath the shimmering beams of light that played across its calm surface lay seemingly bottomless depths which grew colder still as one descended into its inky wet darkness. He ducked under a pine bough and sat down at the water's edge, placing the small suitcase beside him. It was still early. The frost hadn't melted yet, but it wouldn't take long before it quickly disappeared. This was Henry's favorite spot one of the few places where the Johnsons didn't bother him. He would sit there wide-eyed, childlike, as he watched the sunrise higher in the sky and the mist start to waft lazily to and fro before finally lifting. The white gray strands of mist lifting from Mirror Lake's still surface reminded him of the stories Mrs. Johnson used to tell him of unicorns, water fairies, and mountain sprites that would come down to the lake to drink early in the morning before the mist was gone. He sat there. He wasn't going to move a muscle, not even if a fly landed on his nose or a bug crawled up his leg. He closed his eyes until they were slits, so he would barely be able to see out of them. They wouldn't be able to see him. He would disappear into his surroundings. He was positive that way that he would be able to see the fairies as they came down to the water's edge. He sat there watching until the mist left the lake. He wasn't disappointed by the fact that the fairies hadn't appeared. He knew that one day they would come and he would be there to see them. He had to have patience. Mrs. Johnson had always said that patience was a virtue. He rose and cautiously walked along the lake's edge. He had to be careful not to fall in the water or step on a soft spot, or as Mrs. Johnson so often described it, that damn putrid black sticky slime. If he wasn't vigilant enough and ended up stepping in one, getting it on his shoes and pant legs, she would make him take his clothes off outside and would hose him down before she would let him into the house. Mindful of this, Henry moved off to his right, away from the water and into the tall grass. The sun broke through the tree boughs and fell on his face. Suddenly, Henry stopped. He closed his eyes tight and frowned. He had stepped on a soft spot. Boy, what have you done? Mr. Johnson's voice said sternly. My God, look what you've done. Why did you do it? Henry opened his eyes and looked down, expecting to see his shoes wet and covered with black, slimy mud but instead saw that he was standing on something dark and brown. He looked at it for a moment or two. It looked like a jacket, an old dark brown jacket. 
there was a pale white hand sticking out of one sleeve. There was someone inside the jacket, or part of someone. What did you do? I tried to tell Mama. We should have put you away long ago, but she would have none of it. What's gotten into you? Henry jumped to his right. His foot sank into the badly decomposed body and soft, squishy black mud. Henry jumped back, slipping, losing his grip on the small suitcase. It flew off to his right and landed a short distance away in the tall grass. He stumbled forward, trying to regain his balance. His foot hit the head of the body, disturbing it, releasing a pungent odor of decay. He lost his struggle with gravity and fell disturbingly near the head of the corpse. It took several seconds for Henry to understand that it was a face or what was left of a face that he was looking at. He howled with fright. His own face contorted with fear, blanched white from the strong smell of death. Henry successfully scrambled to his feet. As Henry jumped around, howling and hollering, waving his arms wildly, it looked as though he were someone possessed, executing some ritualistic dance over the decaying body. Boy, they're sure gonna put you away now. Why'd you do it? Answer me! Henry tried to answer the voice of Mr. Johnson that he heard in his head, but his arms still waved desperately in the air. The only sounds he made were high-pitched, incoherent shrieks. Now you just stop that, Papa, Mrs. Johnson said in a firm voice. You're frightening him. Her voice changed. It was the same soothing voice she'd always used to calm Henry down. Now, Henry, calm yourself. Take a deep breath. Henry inhaled slowly. Good, that's better. I want you to go and tell Reverend Hollander what you found. They're going to put him away. No, they're not. He hasn't done anything. Henry had stopped his dance. He was standing over the body, his legs spread apart, his chest heaving, biting his hand in his distress, tears falling from his eyes. Henry Muntz, you stop that immediately. Do you hear me? Do as I say. You go get the reverend. Hurry up now. A momentary look of surprise crossed Reverend Hollander's face as he opened the rectory door. Sheriff, with all the trouble you have, I didn't expect you to come yourself. There was an awkward silence. Finally, the reverend recovered his voice, stood to one side, and apologetically said, Where are my manners? Please, come in, come in. Reverend Hollander shut the rectory door and joined the two men. This is such a horrible business, the murder of a child. What is the world coming to? The Reverend shook his head slowly back and forth to emphasize those words. Before the sheriff could ask him why he'd made the call to the station house, the Reverend looked him directly in the eye and asked apprehensively, Sheriff, do you have any idea who could have done something like this? No, Reverend, I don't, he replied evenly. I don't believe it could have been someone from my congregation. I know the hearts of all the sheep in my flock. They're just not capable of such a heinous crime. No, Sheriff, in my opinion, there's a devil in town, preying on the innocent. We must ask ourselves who it could be. Look around and see. He takes many forms. I hope to God it's not one of us. Todd stood just behind the Sheriff. But, Reverend, I thought you just said that you didn't believe it was anyone from your congregation. That's true, Todd. Whoever did this wasn't from my congregation, 
but there are others in town who don't belong to my congregation. Joe's brows furrowed at the reverend's remark. There was an icy silence, and the sheriff's voice finally broke it. Reverend Hollander, my dispatcher said that you had a problem and that you asked for me specifically. Oh, did I? Did I? He paused for a moment and thought. I guess I did. It's Henry. I've been trying to be strong for Daryl and Tudor. I was out to see them early this morning, just as soon as I heard about this horrible crime. I had just returned and was about to open the rectory door when Henry Munts nearly sent me to my maker. He surprised me so I thought my heart had stopped. Just as soon as I opened the door, he rushed past me. I don't know how much importance to place on this or whether or not it really means anything, but Henry arrived in the worst state I've ever seen him in. He's in the guest room where he normally stays. It took me 15 or 20 minutes before I could get him to talk. When he finally did talk, he started going on about something that I just can't make heads or tails of. I'm not sure what he's trying to say. I'll let you speak with him. Perhaps you can make some sense out of it. The two men glanced at one another and then at the reverend, who had already turned away from them. This way, sheriff, he called over his shoulder as he led them down a long, narrow hallway. He's in here, sheriff. The reverend stopped and gently knocked on the door. Henry, it's me, Reverend Hollander. I've brought the sheriff and Todd over to speak with you. We're going to come in now, Henry. Reverend Hollander slowly opened the door to the small, warm bedroom and walked in. The sheriff and Todd followed. Ah, Jesus, doesn't he ever bathe? Todd asked as he stepped into the small room. I've got to open the window. Todd quickly stepped across the room, unlatched the sash, and threw open the window. The cold November air rushed in, offering some immediate relief. I've been working with Henry on his hygiene. Usually, he's pretty good about it. He knows he's supposed to bathe at least twice a week, change his clothes, and shave. But sometimes he forgets, and when he comes here like you see him now, I make him bathe and shave before I allow him to use this room. But this time, when I opened the rectory door, he rushed past me so quickly that I didn't have a chance. I can't get him to do anything. He's just been sitting there rocking and whining for the better part of an hour, the way you see him now. I've never smelled anything so foul. I can't imagine what he's gotten into. The sheriff watched Henry rock back and forth. He was sitting on the edge of the bed, his hands gripping the mattress so tightly that his knuckles had gone white. With each rhythmic movement, Henry made little whining noises. He had pulled his legs close to his chest. As he rocked back and forth, spittle dribbled from the corner of his mouth into the thickening salt and pepper whiskers of his weak old beard, where it formed a puddle and dripped onto his flannel shirt. His pant legs and shoes were wet. The room was filled with a putrid odor. It smells like he's been stomping around in an old septic tank. Todd interjected as he raised the window a little higher, taking the opportunity to breathe in some fresh air. Henry, the Reverend thinks that something might have happened to you, the sheriff began. He was calm and deliberate with his speech. He kept his voice soft and low as he spoke with the distraught man. But he was only a man in the physical sense of the word. Mentally, he was no more than nine or ten. For as long as he could remember, Henry had been like that. When he was still a small boy, the sheriff had asked his mother one day, when he saw Henry in town, why Henry acted the way he did. 
She had told him that Henry wasn't always like that. He had been a very bright little boy until the accident with the tractor. He had almost died. But Mrs. Johnson wouldn't let him. She nursed him back to health. Some people in town had said that Henry would have been better off if he had died. Joe's mother said that Henry's accident happened the same day that Joe was born. Maybe that was the reason why, as a child, he had felt a special connection with Henry, or perhaps it was just that he had felt sorry for him. You never know what goes on in a child's mind, or how he's going to interpret what you tell him. He watched Henry closely. There was no sign that he was going to respond to his first question. He decided to ask another. Henry, the Reverend says you have something to tell me, he said calmly. He didn't want to upset Henry any more than he was. There was no response. He knew he would have to take this slow. Perhaps he had seen a stranger. Perhaps he had seen Judith Dalton's murderer. Did you see someone that scared you? He coaxed. Henry looked at the sheriff. Soft spots and white hand. White hand got me. White hand got me, Henry said, his voice growing louder. White hand? Where, Henry? The sheriff asked. He could see the fear in Henry's eyes. At the lake, Henry whined and increased his rocking. He knew that if he could calm Henry down, the distraught man would tell him exactly what was going on. But that didn't seem possible at this point in time. He was too agitated. He remembered what Jasper had told him. Mirror Lake, a jeep not reported stolen. And from the plate check that Eve ran, a family that had been missing since the beginning of August. He had to find out from Henry exactly where at Mirror Lake the childlike man had gotten the decayed smell on his shoes and pants. Where at the lake, Henry? he asked. He waited for a reply. Henry stopped rocking. He moved his hand frantically around his pant legs and his shoes. He grasped Henry's arm firmly but gently. The white hand, Henry. Where at the lake did you see it? Henry's body shuddered and he pulled his arm out of the sheriff's grasp. The white hand, Henry whispered. It got me by the lake. Henry began to rock again, but slower this time. The sheriff looked at him. He knew somehow that Henry had told him all that he was capable of saying at the moment. Reverend, keep after Henry. See if you can get him to say more. If he does, give me a call. The Reverend nodded. And see if you can get him to take a bath, Todd said and added under his breath, Jesus. The Reverend's eyebrows arched at the deputy's use of the Lord's name in vain. And now, a preview of next week's episode. Joe Martin and his deputy, Todd Johnson, head out to the old Johnson farm and pick up the path Henry took to Mirror Lake. Joe wasn't certain about what Henry saw at the lake. A white hand? Henry said that the white hand got him. Are these just the ramblings of a mentally challenged man? Or are they more real? than anyone wants to believe. Please consider joining our Patreon site and becoming a Dreadmonger. For only $3 a month our Dreadmongers get 
early access to free episodes, exclusive periodic commentary by the authors of the books and creators of the podcast, exclusive access to episodes of the second half of each book as those episodes are released, and access to the entire back catalog of episodes as our podcast goes forward. Click the link in the show description now to become a dreadmonger and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.